What we've learned in society in general is that diversity offers us a wide range of ways to think about things differently. Diversity is about diversity of thinking. It is the contest of ideas that's really important and really powerful in this modern world of business. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Bill Osborne, the legendary New Zealand All Blacks rugby player and outgoing president of the New Zealand Rugby Union. He's had an illustrious career as a business executive and board director, and it's my pleasure to present this conversation between Bill and Guy Malarkey, an associate partner in our Sydney office. Bill will talk about how his Maori background and experiences on the field have shaped his approach to business, leadership, and strategy. Now, here's Guy. Hi, everyone. I'm joined today inside the strategy room by a very special man, and I'd like to introduce him because many of our global listeners you know, won't be as familiar, but Bill Osborne was born in New Zealand, Aotearoa. He's of Te Atihau Nui descent from the Whanganui area in the North Island. Bill was All Black number 744. He played 46 tests for the All Blacks, and he was also in their first ever team that did the clean sweep of the Grand Slam, so winning all their games on their Northern Hemisphere tour back in 1978. After Bill's playing career, he then had a a rich professional career, uh, including senior roles with New Zealand Post, our National Postal Service, Two Degrees, which was a significant mobile telephony player in New Zealand, and and senior roles with Quotable Value and other major organisations. And then in more recent years, Bill has taken on more of a role in corporate governance. Uh, Directorships include Transpower, a major New Zealand energy distributor, Rangitira Services uh, and Paige McRae Engineering, just to name a few. Outside of those, he's also been involved in the Māori Economic Development Commission. He's the outgoing New Zealand Rugby Union president, part of the New Zealand Rugby Board, formerly on the Māori Rugby Board. I don't know how he's managed to fit me in, but Bill, lovely to be with you. Kia ora, Guy. Nice to be here. Thanks, Bill. And I would love to start by talking, you know, taking you back a little bit in your in your days to when you, uh, you know, when you did play for the All Blacks. And for those listeners who aren't familiar, of course, the All Blacks are the national men's rugby union team in New Zealand. They are one of, if not the most successful national sporting teams uh, of all time in terms of their win record. Bill, what was it in the All Blacks, do you think, that made them winners strategically? And I'd be interested how that's then permeated other parts of your professional life post-playing rugby. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question. I think that in order to answer it in a a deep and meaningful way, I, I have to share with you some of my cultural background and how we see the All Black ethos uh, through the eyes of the Maori worldview. So in the Maori worldview, we have a thing called whakapapa. Now, whakapapa is the principle of, it's like heritage, but it's much deeper than heritage because it links people back to their origins right through to the present and on through the future in both a physical and a 
a spiritual way. So it's a very powerful concept and it's very hard to explain in English. But um, what Papa does is it, it brings to life the all-black jersey for those who get to wear it. So if you imagine for a moment the first time I ever pulled on a, an all-black rugby jersey, well, even before that, when I went into the changing room, and you're under a, your main stadium in your country and you're playing for your country and you go into the changing room and there's the jersey with your number on it. And the first thing you do when that happens is you think of all of the deeds that have been done by other people who've worn that jersey. All the people that you've looked up to as your heroes have done great deeds in that jersey. And the Papa kind of links you to it and it says, gosh, what a responsibility we have today. And so it then moves into a kind of another phase where when you pull on that jersey, there's a principle called kaitiakitanga, which means to look after or take care of, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's about taking care of the spiritual value that that jersey represents because you realise that you're only the caretaker of that jersey. You're only getting to wear that that day and honour the whakapapa that's gone before it or the history and the, the responsibility to take it further, care for it today and move it forward. Now, why that's kind of spiritual attachment to the jersey is so powerful is because it creates a real spiritual force and purpose. So it's a very powerful concept which I think translates very well to business because I think, and certainly in all the businesses I'm associated with, is coming to grips with a deep sense of purpose for the people in the organisation. And so that deep sense of purpose is, is the most compelling thing that helps organisations move forward, keep people engaged, keep them wanting to come to work and keep them reaching for a higher purpose. It's very clear, Bill, and, and it's wonderful to hear how you link purpose and culture then with strate- you know, strategy and success. When you think about your professional and your corporate governance roles subsequent to football, what are some of the, the ways you've seen that done effectively where organisations have really understood their purpose and then linked that culture, if you like, to strategy and real outcomes? Well, it's great to have a deep, meaningful purpose, but unless you can create the culture that brings that purpose alive, you really have nothing. So culture, um, to that extent, enables strategic execution to take place, right? So I know that people talk a lot about how important culture is these days, and I think that you can't underestimate it, right? So we have a lot of mixed cultures in New Zealand. There's Pacifica, there's Māori, there's European of all all dimensions coming uh, into New Zealand. And so in in New Zealand rugby, we have sessions where we dig out and understand what cultural drives are important to the people in the team. And I think that's an important thing in business to do as well, right? Before people can engage in a purpose, they have to have recognised who they are and what they stand for. And when you recognise who they are and what they stand for, you can then engage them in another conversation about what kind of culture we need to put in place to execute on our strategic outcomes. And so purpose lined up with culture then becomes extremely powerful. And there's another dimension that also comes into this, which New Zealand rugby works on really hard. And, And we have a principle in New Zealand rugby that says better people make better players. 
So we work very hard on growing the people. Now, as you can imagine, rugby is populated by young people. It's a young person's game, right? And so they're in periods of their lives where they're growing and they're learning. So if we can guide them on that journey and help them become better people, we get much better players from them. And that translates also into business. So when you think about business models, if you've got a compelling purpose and you're building a culture that you you really know you need to execute on strategy, then you should invest in people because the better you can get your people, the more capable you can make them, the better human beings they become, the better they are at executing strategy. It's very clear, Bill. I guess when I think back to the history and the origins of rugby in New Zealand, I'd be interested how you've seen that change in the same way as organisations are thinking how best to engage people. I know in rugby you've had similar challenges over recent decades. Well, you're quite right. It's, a, it's an interesting dilemma, actually, we face today. If I could just go back, you know, to when the origins of rugby were formed in, in New Zealand at about 1870, and in those days New Zealand was largely a rural-based economy, with settlers coming in, they were very resilient people. They had to build their own support networks within their community. And the rugby club formed a a place in New Zealand where communities could gather and they could support each other. So we we even today have about 500 rugby clubs around New Zealand. But the reality is the world has changed dramatically in the last few decades and the structures of families have changed, the structures of communities have changed, the technologies and how we interact with each other have changed. So the world is a different place. So we struggle like other organisations in business to bring ourselves up to date. So I think one of the most important things for rugby to do in New Zealand at the moment is reconnect with our communities. And I think that's the same challenge we face with business. What we're doing in rugby now is as we're starting to look at the digital connection with a new generation. How is it that they want to interact with us? You know, the stadiums aren't full to the brim every time we play anymore. Well, they are if the All Blacks are playing, but not, not necessarily for club or provincial rugby. So there's a group of people that want to interact with our business in a different way. And I think that businesses all over the world have to think about that. They have to think about you know, who their stakeholders are, who their customers are, how do they want to connect with us and how can we serve them better? And I think we quite often get caught up in our own internal way of thinking about the world and we get left behind. In many ways, that's happened to New Zealand rugby. So we were so secure in our foundation of rugby clubs and communities and the connection that we actually missed the fact that our communities were changing so rapidly. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, will be nodding as they listen to you. What could you practically advise organisations, Bill, who are struggling with that connection challenge? What one piece of advice would you give them to really reconnect with their stakeholder groups, be that customers, communities, employees and people? What, what one piece of advice would you give them? Well, look, I think the one piece of advice I would say is set up mechanisms that allow you to listen. Listen and hear what people are saying. So listen, 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 listen and listen and hear, 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 hear. What are they actually saying? Because they're two different things. Sometimes listening is a process of trying to work out what fits with what you're thinking and selecting that. That's not what you need in the modern 
paradigm, right? Because people don't always use the words they mean. I've seen it happen over and over and over again where, particularly in organisations, where people are saying over and over again, I'm, I'm not comfortable, I'm not sure about that. And when you drill into it and you you examine it, actually it's not that they don't understand, they're just not supporting what you're saying, but they won't, they won't argue it, they won't say it, right? So what you've got to try and do is drill in deep enough. You've got to earn trust first, right? So the, the key to being a good listener, I think, is having building trust with the person that's communicating with you. So if they trust you and know that it is safe, to say what they really feel and what they really think, then they will be free and open in their conversation. Trust comes with face-to-face communication, transparency and authenticity. We're prepared to understand and listen. We're prepared to face up to the hard stuff. And when we do, great insights evolve. Look, I I don't claim that we're the best rugby nation in the world by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think... We're one of the most creative. So when a rule changes or when something changes that alters the course of the game in some way, we're the first to innovate and make that work because we're prepared to listen to every single person in the rugby fraternity who has an idea and we're prepared to explore that. And we've got the infrastructure that allows that to occur. So if a business can create kind of this model where you're open to new ideas you're able to explore them safely and you're allowed to take them to test for success or failure, then there's a lot of trust and every time a new idea comes out, it will be explored in a positive way. Bill, um, just just coming back, I'd like to just cycle back a little bit to, to something you talked about before, particularly Papa and Kaitiakitanga in the All Blacks. One of the things to me that's obvious is the way you recognise and value diversity for mine at least, an inclusive culture is a a key element of delivering any strategy. Many of our listeners grapple with this challenge. And I think you have a privileged perspective on how you recognize and value diversity, create inclusion to then execute and do great things. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Bill. Um, I think we're very lucky in New Zealand that we, we have overall an inclusive society. So we have a very diverse mix of populations, beliefs, um, cultures, and, and you know, the Pacifica and Maori culture is very strong in New Zealand. And our, our European um, ancestors are also very accepting. So in the early days, there was no such thing as diversity and inclusion. We were just one people and we never even thought about it. What we've learned in society in general is that Diversity offers us a wide range of ways to think about things differently. Diversity is about diversity of thinking. It is the contest of ideas that's really important and really powerful in this modern world of business. So having a lot of different cultures in every organisation means if you're to get a common culture to move forward with, You have to include everybody and understand their perspectives from their own cultural worldview. And only after you understand what people stand for and and what they mean and what they value 
can you build an organisation culture that can execute on strategy? I couldn't agree more, Bill. And I attribute where I am in life a lot to when I, where I went to high school. There were 27 primary cultures at my high school in Auckland. And I, yeah, I truly believe that being part of a diverse and inclusive group of people at that critical time in my life was a big shaper for me. That contest of ideas, to use your language, is sometimes literally a contest because you will have divergent perspective, sometimes very divergent. What effective ways have you seen organisations harness that contest for positive outcomes as opposed to it sort of devolving into something that's more adversarial? Well, look, if you take on the field performance, I think the the All Blacks have been magnificent over the years of taking that contest of ideas and turning it into an advantage on the field. If there's something new to come out and be invented and do better and differently, we're the ones who generally lead that. There is an inclusive process in the all-black ethos that allows people to bring forward new ideas and have them tested on the field. The challenge usually is, what are the best ones to pick and how do we invest in those ones? So everybody in every business has a stream of ideas that flow down the river and the challenge is, which ones are going to give us the biggest bang for buck that we can pluck out of the water and nurture and grow? So um, I think that the first thing is it's got to be safe to come up with new ideas and and it's incumbent upon us all to hear those ideas. So it comes back to that listening skill again. I have a, a thing that I use when I'm getting ideas thrown at me that we we never say no to a new idea. We say we can if we do something. And at the end of all of that, you'll filter out the ones that appear to be biggest bang for buck or easy to execute and try out anyway. You've got to do your rigorous analysis and see what works best for your business and and be prepared to let it go if it's not the right timing. And we are now moving into a time where we've realised that we have to reimagine rugby, grapple with the new technologies and digitalisation of our product and work out how we can connect with a new generation of people who want to engage with us. And so out of that came a strategic pillar of finding our international value as a brand. You know, how do we commercialise our our brand values, which go right back to the things I was talking about right at the start that arise out of our whakapapa and our kaitiakitanga, those Maori worldview values that come right through in the brand value of the jersey. Bill, um, one of the challenges that many organisations, New Zealand Rugby included, by the way, are grappling with is their ESG, their Environmental Social Governance Obligations. I know you know this topic well. And I think it's an interesting one in the context of diverse views and the contest of ideas because different stakeholders Within different and within and without different organisations, may have different perspectives on the right short-term and long-term actions to take to address ESG challenges. What's your perspective, Bill, on how again diversity and inclusion can lead to better outcomes in the context of ESG? Well, look, I think more than ever before, I think today we acknowledge the importance of the environment in which we work and the importance of getting social licence to operate. So when I think about my origins in Maridum, 
you know, ESG is not a foreign concept to Maoridom. So Maoridom have known for a thousand years that people in the environment need to look after each other. They're interdependent. For a thousand years, Maori have known the value of the air, the water and the land in the cycle of our own lives. And we take it upon ourselves, the principle of kaitiakitanga applies to how we think about our environment. Maori belong to the land, not the other way around. So the European concept is that we own land. Uh, but the Maori worldview says, no, 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 you don't own the land. You're only here for a short time. You belong to it. And indeed, New Zealand is starting to adopt the way Maori look at the Maori worldview, looks at our dependency on the environment, our responsibility for it. In fact, the New Zealand government today uh, requires all state sector organisations to consider something called Matourangi Māori, which is the Māori worldview, the, the view of Māori learning over a thousand years and how to apply that to preserve our land and our well-being and our environment in general. So I think ESG is a really important thing and you can't be caring about your social responsibility and the environment as a whole without understanding your governance responsibilities over that. Now, Maori speak about that through Kwaiteakitanga and it's about having a governance body over that to take care of all of those things. So it strikes me as a very natural thing to have ESG in every boardroom. We think of it as a modern kind of thing in business, but but actually we've had that responsibility forever and we're only just grappling with the importance of that even if we are driven by a profit motive because we are all interdependent and one cannot exist without being in harmony with the other. Thanks, Bill. Very, very clear. Bill, uh, amazingly so far, we've not talked a lot of direct rugby analogies, but I am going to, <laughs> uh, I am now going to go down that path. And when you were playing, I would hypothesise that you had to solve problems whilst you were playing the game. And furthermore, you had to do that often with considerable uncertainty surrounding your decision-making. And you've obviously done it on the field, you now do it off the field. But what are some of your reflections on what being in the All Blacks has taught you about problem-solving and decision-making uncertainty? Well, that's a, <laughs> that is a tough question because I don't want to give away too many secrets. But Understood. <laughs> and I don't want you to either, Bill, just to be clear. <laughs> well, look, I think on the rugby field there's, there's moments of key decisions. You get a penalty, do you kick for goal and take three points or do you kick for touch and go for five or seven points? And so there's these moments of clarity that are required by the leadership team on the field. And those are all environmentally dependent, right? So it depends on the stage of the game yet, what the score is, the fatigue level in your team versus the fatigue level in the others, whether you've got two full sides and all sorts of bits and pieces come into it. So... New Zealand traditionally is always gone for the active option, right? It's In fact, the All Blacks today, I can tell you, the All Blacks today, they don't just say they have to win. They say they have to win with mana. Now, mana is another Maori word. It means authority with respect, with control and, and dignity. So 
Winning is not enough. We want to win by playing open, fast, running rugby. We want to enjoy what we're doing. We want to be compelled to do better and faster and, and more. And so when decisions come on the field, they have to weigh up all of the possibilities and hold back the urge to play the game the way we intuitively like to play it and look at the scoreboard and then think about the goal at the end of the year. What is it? You know, what are we striving for? And then fit it in. And that becomes an important role for leadership in a team where where leaders, just as they do in business, have to be able to stand away from the day job and the emotion of the moment and make rational decisions. And generally, those decisions are about the future, not about what's going on right now. So I think that side of leadership on the field is very similar to leadership, you know, in business. Mm. You, you, you get these moments where clarity is required and a leader will fall back on their clarity of purpose, what they value, what the culture is they have, and then what do we need to do to get this point in the future. I totally get it, Bill. How do you keep your eye on the play as well, and on the ball as well as on the broader game where there are short-term decisions and there's a long-term strategy, be it for the game or the campaign, how you manage the tensions between you know, playing it as you see it in front of you versus being able to step back and look at the longer-term vision. And I hope I've made that a bit clearer this time. So the leader's role uh, always is to focus on the right things, whereas the players at the time, um, they can focus on doing what they need to do right now. And, And what happens on the rugby field, you'll see it more and more often now, is when a an important decision has to be made considering the long-term picture and the short-term now, leaders on the field will gather together and they'll have a conversation and they'll talk about what's important and why it's important, what the probabilities are and why they should try this or that or the other thing. And that is also the way it should work in business, right? It shouldn't be up to the one person, but rather a team of diverse minds thinking diversely coming together and analysing that situation as a whole, considering the big picture where we're going, considering the capabilities we have, considering the needs of our stakeholders and customers and and make a decision collectively. What I used to do on the field when I was playing was I used to get myself so fit that everything that happened on the field happened so fast, I had to back my intuition on just about everything. And so when I came to those critical moments, I knew that my intuition about the game would lead me to the right answer because we're talking about split seconds of time here. So it's when you get into a fatigue mode, and this is the same in business, you get into that fatigue point of, of your part in this action or business and you don't think clearly. And so you can't rely on a rational kind of answer to come up and be before you. And so that's why I think it is important to get lots of rest when you are in business, get your wind back before you make critical decisions. makes total sense, Bill. Just to extend on that analogy, other than rest, how do you keep yourself match fit for your corporate responsibilities? Well, that's a very good question. So I read prolifically. I connect to overseas news. I connect with what futurists are saying and I take time to think about things. You know, I think about things 
deeply and, and I, I let things resonate with my own values and say, does that resonate? Am I seeing something that's not there or am I not seeing something that is there? And I do talk to other people about those things mm. and you, you draw conclusions from those around you and what you see. Mm. Bill, um, in our prior dealings, we've spoken a lot about the challenge of inertia in, in some organisations and certainly McKinsey research would indicate that the best and top performing companies, you know, do make big moves with bold strategies and they, you know, just rather than a linear allocation of resources, they figure out what's important and then they go after that with dynamic prioritisation of resources. What are your thoughts, Bill, be it in rugby or elsewhere, of how you've seen some of the things we've talked about today helping to overcome inertia and focus on the things that matter strategically? Every organisation faces that, that challenge. And honestly, there's... In my view, there's nothing quite like a bit of a disaster to galvanise attention on things. And I, <laughs> and I, I know we've benefited in rugby from this. I mean, COVID for us was an utter disaster because we couldn't get people into grounds to, to watch rugby and our broadcasting fees were going to be diluted by the fact that we couldn't even put teams on the field to play. We brought a lot of people together and we said we need to make some really hard decisions. And I think we survived while keeping as many people with their dignity intact. The same principle that makes you success in sport, right? The, the principle of focus, determination, teamwork, and courage. If you, if you put those things together, you can do anything, right? So those are the principles that help me get through and become an all black, and they're the principles that help me get through and be successful in business. Couldn't agree more, Bill. Bill, um, there's one final topic I'd love to speak to you about today. You know, leadership has been a thread of everything we've talked about so far, but I'm sure you have met some inspirational leaders in your professional corporate life as well as your sporting career. Are there any leaders, when you think about everything we've talked about today, that really inspired you? Well, look, there's a period in my life where I was fortunate enough to meet Nelson Mandela. And I mean, that man was one of the most inspiring people I'd ever met and had the privilege to talk to. When I, when I think about my own experiences, I, I look up in the rugby sense, I look up to people that changed rugby landscape forever or led organisations through really difficult times. So, you know, one of the people that was a guy by the name of Jock Hobbs, who was a lawyer by training, but he was an outstanding leader on the rugby field he was an outstanding All Black and he became chairman of New Zealand Rugby. And he took New Zealand Rugby from the amateur era to the professional era. And he did it with panache and style and genuine great leadership. So I was inspired by him to come back and do something with rugby. But it did make me stop and think, well, you know, we, we all have to give something back to the game, which has given so much to us. And it's one of the reasons why I agreed to come back and be president, and that's why I agreed to be on the Maori board to help the, the Maori Rugby New Zealand develop and grow. Thanks, Bill. And when I think about how Jock stewarded rugby, as you say, into a new era, I, I would contend that firstly, he really understood Papa as it replied to New Zealand rugby. Number two, um, he had tremendous mana, you know, authority, respect from that rugby community. 
and and in terms of Kaitiaki Tanga, again, he really, yeah, he, he he was one of those stewards that people would listen to, would respect. So to me, Jock's almost a wonderful way for us to close today. No, I agree entirely. I, I think that's that's quite true. Bill, Guy, thank you so much for this insightful discussion. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. As always, we'll share a transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR or follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.